Chapter 18 of the Radio Beasts. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Daryl Hansen. The Radio Beasts by Ralph Milne Farley. Chapter 18 Sangre Iarinus. Thus collapsed Cavett's plan. Thus went for naught his many nights of instruction. He had counted on his trained Woofus, the largest of the five, to hold off the other four, and perhaps cause a diversion during which he could reach the side of his princess. Had someone guessed his plans and kept the Woofus from him? The four purple beasts, which had been admitted to the arena, for the purpose of making an end of the Earthman, now slowly and stealthily approached their victim, who watched them with fascinated eyes, in more or less of a daze. O oh, Minorian, beast from another world, Yuri shouted in glee from the stand, Give antenna unto me. What think you now? Can you alone vanquish these four? The meaning of his emphasis was most evident, and showed that the king knew that Cabot had counted on the assistance of his trained Woofus. Not alone, O king, he replied, with a meaning all his own, then raised his eyes reverently to heaven. An angry rustle arose from the stands, like leaves before an approaching storm. Evidently, Cabot still had a following in Kuwana. There he stood, alone, a stranger from another world, bearded, long-haired, disheveled and unkempt. A pitiable sight indeed, and yet there was something heroic in his bearing, so that a large section of the populace, remembering his past deeds, were still glad to acclaim him as their leader. But what good would this following do? For the purple beasts were now nearly upon him in their slow and stealthy approach. At this moment, a crash resounded throughout the stadium, but it was heard by the ears of the Earthman alone. The iron gates gave way, and out bounded a fifth woofus, larger than any of the rest. The woofus shrieked, and Lilla and Yuri both shuddered, but each for a different cause. Lilla, because she thought it was a new menace to her husband. Yuri, because it represented the one eventuality which he had felt sure he had guarded against. Cabot thrilled. Not alone, he repeated, but with a new meaning now. Look well, O king. Like a purple streak of lightning, the newcomer shot across the arena with a long-drawn crescendo howl. The sound of a woofus is indescribable. Miles Cabot has tried many times to describe it to me, but has failed. The nearest that he can come to it is to say that it resembles the noise obtained by placing the receiver of a telephone set over the mouthpiece when one wishes to get even with the girl at Central for being particularly and unusually ornery.
It was to prevent this that French phones were invented. But to go on with the story, as the fifth woofus charged across the sands, the other four heard his battle cry, and, pausing in their approach toward Cabot, turned and faced the newcomer, who at once stopped in his onrush. For a few paraparths, the five beasts, four on one side and one on the other, confronted each other with bristling antenna. Then, sick him! shouted the Earthman. At that, his pet Woofus, electrified, sprang at the other four. A clawing, snarling ball of purple hate resulted, out of which finally catapulted one huge Woofus, which fled across the silver sands. The four quickly disentangled themselves and followed. Cabot stood aghast, for his Woofus, his own brave Woofus, was in flight. Round and round the arena it ran, pursued by the other four. This was a spectacle the like of which had never been vouchsafed to the sport-loving Cupians, or to the bloodthirsty Formians, for that matter. It appealed alike to the predominating trait of each race, and the throngs in the stands went wild with enthusiasm, even the supporters of Cabot forgetting their partisanship in their glee. The fight could now have but one outcome, namely, the ultimate overtaking and overcoming of the pursued, and after that, a horrible death for the Earthman. Gradually, the chase lengthened out until each pursuer was separated from the next by almost as many peristads as lay between their leader and the beast which fled before them. Cabot sat down in the center of the stands and watched the race with a feeling of strange detachment, scarcely conscious of the fact that at the end of all this he was destined to be torn to bits. His only sentiment was sorrow that his pet should have proved a craven, and anxiety for its safety. Why couldn't the woofus die fighting, as befitted a creature trained by Miles Cabot, the Minorian? With this thought in mind, Miles jumped to his feet, and hastening over to one side of the stadium, stood directly in the path of the oncoming beasts. He heard Lilla gasp in the stands above, and then the woofuses were upon him. His own pet, tired and frantic as it was, saw and recognized its master, and paused to turn to one side and so avoid running him down. And, at this instant, Cabot shouted peremptorily, Sick him, Tig! Sick him! Habit proved stronger than fear. The woofus wheeled, and in an instant had laid its surprised pursuer in the dust. Run, ordered the earthman, and again the largest woofus fled, followed now by only three enemies. The line strung out as before, and again circled the stadium, and again the earthman halted the procession when it reached him. But this time, the second pursuing Woofus put up a better fight than its predecessor, with the result that the other two caught up and joined the fray. Cabot's Woofus was soon lying on the ground, with its three enemies on top of it, but its jaws were firmly fixed in the throat of one of them, and the body of this one protected it in a measure from the other two. The Earthman stood by, and interested, 
but an impotent onlooker, for there was nothing he could do to help. But at last the underdog wriggled clear of the pile and fled again around the enclosure. This time it was followed by only two, for the second of its enemies lay stretched upon the gory sands. One of the two pursuers now rapidly gained upon the pursued and overtook it as it reached the opposite side of the stadium from that on which Cabot was standing. So Miles raced across to observe the battle close at hand. But before he reached the other side, the fight was over. His own woofus raised its bloody head aloft with a paean of triumph and planted its forepaws upon the body of its third victim. The fourth pursuer halted in its mad rush. For a few parapars, the two beasts glared at each other. Then, with arched backs and stiffened legs, they slowly circled each other, watching for an opening. Divide and conquer, the radio man commented to himself. Then to his pet, sick him. The huge beast sprang at its opponent with a snarl, and now the tables were turned for it was the other which fled. Round and round the arena they ran, the pursued gradually drawing away from the pursuer. Miles could see that his own beast was more tired than the other, and accordingly he became afraid that even yet the battle might be lost. So, hastily deciding upon a rash plan, he placed himself directly in the path of the oncoming beasts. Straight toward him they came. Yet Cabot did not flinch. Then with a bound, his enemy was upon him, and down he crashed, flat on his back on the silver sands. But his hands warded off the slathering jaws from his throat. His strength was sufficient for this for just a few moments, and a few moments were enough. With a crunch, the jaws of his own woofus closed on the spine of his enemy. And in another instant, the bearded, disheveled, gory earthman and his equally gory purple pet arose from the ground and stood erect, victors of the arena. Four dead forms lay on the bloody sands, bearing mute witness to the efficient combination of brute strength and human cunning which had triumphed that day. Then the woofus stepped over to its master and rubbed against his side. Lilla shuddered and hid her eyes. But Cabot smiled, and looking down, patted the bloody head. At this moment, the king arose and gave some hurried orders to his guards. It was his undoing. The woofus heard and recognized the voice, and in another instant it had cleared the railing with one bound, and was making its way through the frantic throng toward the royal box. Cabot called and called, but forgotten were his teachings, for the woofus had wind of his maltreater and was obsessed with a single thought, namely, revenge. So Cabot followed hastily in the wake of the beast and easily surmounted the barrier. The whole stadium was in an uproar, Red, yellow, and black flags were being waved by the various factions, and cries of, Long life to Cabot, the Minorian! Down with the usurper! 
death to the Formians, filled the air, mingled with cries of fear from those near the royal box, and shots fired by the royal bodyguard. The red pennant of the Q dynasty predominated. Evidently, the place had been intentionally packed with the followers of the dead baby king. But Cabot had no time to exult over this coup, for his every energy was bent upon reaching Lilla in time to save her from the terror which he had loosed upon them. In spite of Cabot's haste, however, the beast broke through the guards, undeterred by their firing, and reached the royal box before him. Lilla shrieked and cringed to one side, but she had no need to do so, for straight as an arrow flew the huge animal at Yuri, and down went the king with a crash beneath the impact of the beast. Then the Formian bodyguard closed over Yuri, the Woofus, Lilla, and Queen Formus in a snarling, fighting, reeking pile. To the rescue of the princess, shouted Miles Cabot, and a full hundred Cupians responded, falling upon the black writhing mass, with swords, pistol butts, and even chairs. Cabot stood to one side, directing the attack. As more and more of his faction rallied about him, he formed the latecomers in a cordon, facing outward, so as to keep off any Cupians so rash as to try to assist their king, or any Formians so temerarious as to come to the rescue of their queen. So intent was the swarming black pile upon getting at the woofus which had Yuri pinned beneath it, that they did not heed the enemy upon their own backs. But those at the bottom of the pile were careful to bridge their bodies, so as to keep the weight off the ant queen Formus and the Cupian princess Lilla. Cabot's Cupians stabbed and hacked and pulled. Occasionally, an ant would turn and snap savagely at them. But one by one, the black ant-men were crushed and torn away, until at last the bottom of the pile was reached. There, on the floor of the royal box, lay a battered and bloody purple body, beside a gaping hole, which clearly indicated the avenue of escape by which had disappeared Yuri and Formus, with Lilla as their prize. The floor of the box had evidently given way under the weight of the conflict, and through the hole thus formed, the enemy had escaped. Cabot and his immediate followers stared at this hole for a mere paraparth. Then, realizing the situation, they plunged into the dark depths beneath. The drop was nearly half a peristad. But luckily, the hole led into one of the cells for confining beasts of the arena, and the floor was covered deep with straw, which broke their fall. The first few of the company jumped and then called to their companions that it was all right, but those above delayed in following for fear of landing on those below. And during this moment of indecision, those in the cell suddenly found themselves set upon from all sides, for quite a number of ant-men had fallen through with their leaders and had remained behind to bar the passage. The fighting was in nearly pitch darkness, but fortunately there was little danger of mistaking friends from foes. 
for huge ants ten feet long bear but little resemblance to cupian beings even in the dark nevertheless the sharp mandibles of the formians proved effective weapons at close quarters those of the cupians who had remained on the stand hearing the shouts of the conflict below poured into the hole with weapons poised and struck home whenever they chanced to land upon an enemy finally all was silence but whether the formians had all been slain or had merely retired to some nook from which to rush out again and renew the conflict could not be told there was no time however to stop and find out quick the earthman shouted we must follow the usurper whereat all the party started groping about to try and discover an exit a shout of here is the door from one of them and all pressed in his direction cabot merely following with the crowd since his antenna gave him no clue as to the source of the cry the door opened into a passageway in silence the party threaded the dim corridors beneath the stadium until a sudden turn brought them out into the daylight facing the city and as they debouched they saw just out of reach a kerkool which bore yuri formis and lilla toward kuana out of the other exits were pouring a fighting seething crowd of cupians and formians as on that other day not so long ago when prince yuri had assassinated king q at the peace day exercises and had thus made himself king but this time the red pennants of q outnumbered the yellow of yuri and the black of formis combined other kerkools were standing beside the stadium without awaiting the outcome of the fighting cabot and those with him seized the nearest cars and sped after the fleeing king straight for the palace drove yuri and straight for the palace drove his pursuers yuri arrived there first entered the capital ground and barred the gates whereat the q faction surrounded the entire group of buildings on the top of kuwana hill they were quickly augmented by the victorious reds from the stadium then cabot and a handful of the more intrepid of his faction battered down one of the palace gates and forced their way inside as the door crashed in the assaulting force was met by a volley of shots but it had been a bit premature and so most of the bullets went wild within the doorway stood rank upon rank of the palace guard cupians of unquestioned loyalty to the usurper yuri his own personal bodyguard who had been recruited from the unspeakables of the city by trisp the barmango of kuwana they were armed with rifles but before they could recover from their surprise sufficiently to fire a second round the assaulting party swept in and engaged them in hand-to-hand -hand combat some of the guard possessed revolvers as well as the longer weapon and so were able to defend themselves manfully at close range but they were merely thugs who fought for the love of fighting whereas the attackers were inspired by the enthusiasm of an ideal 
the ideal of Cupian freedom, which had been engendered by Cabot the Menorian in the first war of liberation, and which now had been born anew in the second. Their onrush proved irresistible, and soon the few remaining survivors of Yuri's guard had fled into the interior of the palace. Miles and his men stripped the dead of their arms and ammunition, and followed. The grip of an automatic in Cabot's hand gave him new courage. Forward, for Princess Lilla, he cried. And his followers echoed, For Princess Lilla! Death to the Formians! Thus shouting, they threaded their way through the palace corridors, hunting, ever hunting. Many a black ant-man they slew, and many a familiar spot they traversed, but not a sign did they find of Lilla or of her abductors. The royal palace of Kuwana is set upon the crest of Capitol Hill, in the midst of the group of monumental white buildings which comprise the far-famed University of Cupia. Its main elevation looks to the southward, across the plaza, to the fields and stadium, and hills beyond. Surrounding the university group and the palace and the plaza are the lesser buildings of Kuwana, built in stucco in graceful lines, with high-pitched, red-tiled roofs, a style of architecture quite unlike that employed by the ant-men, whose houses are square and chunky affairs, resembling exaggerated piles of toy building blocks. Because the palace stands upon the summit of a hill, the ground entrances lead into what are practically its cellars, hence the interminable labyrinthine corridors which the earthman and his supporters now threaded. Every turn, every door, every side hallway had to be approached with utmost caution to avoid a surprise attack, and at each intersecting or forking corridor the party divided so as to defend their flanks. Thus the numbers with Cabot rapidly dwindled, and soon he found himself searching through the passageways alone. Now he had to proceed with even greater caution. No Cupians did he meet, but time and again, after rounding some turn or mounting some stair, he found himself face to face with a Formian. Usually he was quicker on the draw, for the human hand has a craft unequaled by the claw of an insect, even though the insect may possess a superior brain. Only one Formian whom he encountered fired first, and fortunately that one missed. Thus, step by step, the Earthman emerged from the subterranean depths of the palace cellars to the upper levels. He had just annihilated one more black antagonist when he saw approaching him a Cupian in a toga which bore the insignia of the palace guards. Here indeed was a victim greatly to his taste, for he had tired of killing ants, and longed to get his hands on someone closer to King Yuri. But, just as he was about to fire, the other spoke. Stop, Cabot. Do you not know Nan-Nan of the Caves of Car? Cabot lowered his weapon in surprise. What are you doing here? 
and in that garb, he exclaimed. I scarcely recognize you without your red embroidered robe. The young priest smiled. Great are the ramifications of the lost religion. For instance, I might tell you who it was that loosed your pet woofus in the arena this morning, when you appealed unto the god of Minos. But for the present, my duty is merely to lead you to the princess. Follow me. And back he led Miles Cabot, down again into the depths from which the Earthman had so laboriously fought his way. Finally, they halted, and the priest said, There are reasons why I cannot accompany you farther. But you can find the route from here to the princess without difficulty. First right, then left, then straight ahead. And may the great builder go with you. I cannot, for I have other work to do. And he passed Cabot and vanished down the long corridor. Taking a firm grip on his revolver, Miles strode around the first turn to the right, then around the first turn to the left, and then pressed on until he found the way blocked by a thick, heavy curtain. This he flung to one side and stepped boldly into the room beyond. The room beyond was circular, about one peristat in diameter. Its roof was vaulted and lit by a single large vapor lamp. A continuous stretch of crimson curtains lined the walls. At the opposite side of the room, from that at which he had entered, there was a small raised platform. And on this platform stood King Yuri, with Lilla held close in his arms. He was making ardent love to her, which she seemed too tired and beaten to resist. Yuri's torn toga and the deep scratches on one of his arms showed only too clearly the handiwork of the purple beast on the stands of the stadium. Or had Lilla done this? Stop! Cabot thundered, covering the king with his revolver. Yuri turned and faced his accuser, but still kept one arm around the princess, who stared at Cabot, almost unseeing, out of dull and weary eyes. The king appeared a bit surprised, but nevertheless maintained the calm which was so typical of him. Yuri, your end has come, the earthman announced, and with your death there begins a slaughter which shall not cease until every black formian is driven from the face of this planet. For only so can war be banished forever. Is that so? sneered the king. And may I ask who it was that first brought war here from Minos? Cabot winced. The accusation was true. That is neither here nor there, he asserted. Maybe I did bring war, but if so, what I have commenced, I shall finish. Yuri's lip curled in scorn. Behold, I am unarmed. Is it the custom on your planet to shoot down unarmed men? I had thought better even of a beast from Minos. 
If you thought so, then you made the mistake of your life, Cabot replied. I am no storybook character. Often have I read, in tales of chivalrous adventure, how the hero, having the villain finally at bay, gave him his chance, and then vanquished him in fair fight. If I had only myself to think of, O king, I would fling this gun aside and strangle you with my bare hands. But what of the princess and of Cupia? I have no right to sacrifice Lilla's happiness and the safety of my country on the altar of my own personal honor. That would be selfish indeed. Wisely spoken, the princess interjected. And so, Miles continued, armed or unarmed, you die. And he raised his pistol. Just a moment, Yuri put in hurriedly, seeming for the first time a bit perturbed. After you entered this chamber, a door automatically slid shut behind you, thus barring your exit. If you do not believe me, you can back up, still keeping me covered, and feel of it. That door is so thick and so secure that you could never break through it. I, and I alone, know the secret of that door. I am not afraid to die, though it is a bit unpleasant to be killed by a coward. But unless you spare my life, neither you nor the princess will ever leave this room. Better a wise coward than a brave fool, Miles quoted from one of Poblas's proverbs. That may be, the king testily resumed. But, as I have said, if you kill me, you will never leave this room. Your only hope of escape is to spare my life. Cabot considered for a moment. Naturally, he did not believe Yuri. Yet how simple to test him by trying the door. Just as he was about to do this, however, he remembered something. Your threats hold no terror for me, he asserted. Nan-Nan directed me here. If I do not reappear... He will bring hordes of my followers to batter down your door. Yuri laughed, a sneering laugh. You lose. Did not this Nan-Nan, of whom you speak, wear the uniform of my bodyguard? Cabot grudgingly admitted it. I thought so, the usurper resumed in triumph. Know then that I sent Nan-Nan to lure you here, so that you might become my victim. The Earthman's suspicions were aroused. Whom could he trust? Then he reflected that Yuri was unarmed, which fact seemed to knock the bottom out from under his story. An unarmed person would scarcely have given orders to have an armed person sent to him as a prospective victim. Why not try the door, however? That would determine, in a measure, whether Yuri lied. But, as Miles started to put this plan into effect, 
he was stayed by the sound of a human voice, a strange and raucous human voice. Could he be dreaming? Had his mind given way under the strain of his many vicissitudes? For there were no human voices on Poros. Yet there could be no mistaking the sound. It was not the radiated antenna speech of Poros. It was a real human voice, smiting against his human ears. Cabot stood still in perplexity. End of chapter 18